What great singing this morning. The church is alive today, and that's good. Yeah. If you will take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 11, and um, as you're finding your place there, I want to make a statement that I think will be super encouraging for you today. It's a statement I made last week, uh, but here it is. Life is full of trouble and perplexity. Doesn't that just fire you up this morning and encourage you? I mean, you came this morning to, to really be charged because it's been a rough week and, and to hear that life is full of trouble and perplexity and ups and downs and probably more valleys than, than hilltop experiences. Doesn't that just really resonate with you this morning, right? Probably not. You'd rather me come in and say, life is going to be easy. It's going to be a breeze this week. There's going to be no issues whatsoever. You're not going to get that un. Uh, unexpecting phone call, the bad report. I mean, in fact, you, you thought your taxes would be, instead of getting a refund, you thought you'd be paying in this year, but all of a sudden you're going to get that call from the IRS and you, you overpaid your taxes by, you know, seven grand. And, and so just expect that. Wouldn't you want me to say that to you this morning? I, I want somebody to say that to me. I got some things I could do with that 7,000. Yeah. The truth is, the reality is, life is full of trouble, life is full of perplexity, life is difficult, life is hard many, many times. We get all of those unwanted circumstances in life more often than not. And so we talked a little bit about this last week as we started this 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And so... When we think about the trouble and the perplexity of life, and we understand how hard life can be, it seems that the troubles that we experience would drive us to the Lord, that it would drive us to spend time with the Lord and seek His face and, and spend time in prayer. But if we're honest, that's probably not always the case. Now, we will go to the Lord when we are at rock bottom. We will get on our face and knees when we realize there is absolutely no other place that we, begin, we can turn. That's when we begin to pray. But if we understood that life is full of trouble and full of perplexities, then why wouldn't we all the time be in constant prayer and communion with the Father? I love this statement that Martin Luther said. The less I pray, the harder it gets. The more I pray the better it goes. Now, is Martin Luther, that great reformer, is he saying that when we pray that life is easy? I don't think that's what Martin Luther was saying at all. I think it changed his perspective on life that regardless of whatever the issue was, when he prayed, he had the power, the sustenance, the ability to walk through that difficulty, walk through that trouble. But when there was a season of prayerlessness in his life, that's when those same sort of struggles seemed harder. So it's not so much about what you're going through, it's about who you're going through that trouble with. And we want to walk with the Lord, and the Lord wants to walk with us. In fact, as we talked about last Sunday, looking throughout the Bible, we see that it portrays God as a God of benevolence, that, that he's a God of generosity, that he's a God of goodness. The Bible gives us this picture that God wants more for us than we really want for ourselves. He's wanting and desiring and working for our good even when we don't realize how good that is. Or we can't even see the goodness that he wants to do. But that's who God is. He is benevolent and good. And at the same time, he possesses the means as well as the desire to do that. So he is the God, as the Bible says, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, we don't use that phrase very often in our daily vernacular, but that really means that God is infinite in his wealth, infinite in his provisioning, infinite in his resources to step in and meet a need. So he has the resources, and that's one thing, but he also has the desire. God wants to take his resources and plant them into your life, into your family, into your situation, into our church. He has the resources and the desire to plant the gospel through his church in places all around the world so that all ethne have an opportunity to hear and respond in faith to the gospel message. That is who our God is. So in a world of trouble and perplexity, we have a God of benevolence and goodness, of means and of desire to bless and to guide his, his people. So when we think about that, 
the trouble or, or, or the, uh, the situation, whatever it may be, is not so tied to whether or not God will step in. It's tied to whether or not we will engage with God over that situation. Will we go to him in prayer? Remember, I quoted last Sunday, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, right? And then it goes on to talk about what he's going to do from a revival standpoint. But God had the desire, God has the means, but he wasn't doing all that he would desire to do until his people pray. That's what that verse is saying. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven heal their land, meet the needs, right? So God's activity, here's the way you could look at it. God's activity runs on the rails of the prayers of his people. How many of you like trains? You know, especially us boys, uh, we grew up playing with train sets. We grew up looking at trains and loving trains and, and, and maybe even admiring and, and desiring to be a, a, an engineer one day, of being able to motor that big old behemoth down the rails, how does a train get from one place to the other? It goes on the track. The rails of the track take it from one place to the other. So when we think about prayer, that is the track by which God's activity runs. And it only happens when we pray. And so we're talking about effective prayer as we come to the beginning part of the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And last Sunday, uh, I shared a story with you to kind of set the stage for what we're talking about in this prayer that the Lord's going to teach, or this uh, teaching on prayer is a better way to put it. And so there was this reporter who was sent to Israel from a, one of the leading papers in the country. This was several years ago. And this female reporter was sent over to Israel to do some special interest writing in the area of politics and just things that were happening in Jerusalem and around the country of Israel. And so she gets to Jerusalem. She rents an apartment there uh, on the courts, courtyard of the western wall of Israel, that ancient ruins of the original wall around the temple court area in the first and second temple that David and Solomon, or Solomon and and uh, his contemporaries built. And so we call it today the Wailing Wall. So here's this reporter sitting there in her uh, apartment overlooking that courtyard. And every single day, some of us have been there, every single day thousands of Jews and Christians and other people come to the Wailing Wall to pray. They will go down there in the different segments and men and women's areas and they will pray. Sometimes it's just audibly. Sometimes they will pray audibly and then put a note that kind of write their prayers and stick it into the wall of the, the Wailing Wall there. So people come all day long and pray at the Wailing Wall. And here's this reporter sitting in her apartment day after day, and she eats her breakfast there at the window, and she just watches this. She begins to notice a, an elderly gentleman one particular morning. There was something about him that stood out. So she kept her eyes on him as he went down to the Wailing Wall to pray, and he spent a couple hours there. Then he left, and, and so she kind of went on her business. She's probably thinking about uh, topics and writing and doing all that stuff. And later that afternoon, shows up again. She watches him. He's there a couple hours. The next day, it's the same thing. Morning, afternoon, he leaves in between. Next day, the same thing. Morning, afternoon, a little break in between. And so that went on for a period of weeks. She decided, there might be something here. I need to see if I can get to the bottom of this. I'm a reporter after all. So she decides one particular morning to go down early and to wait for him. Sure enough, he comes just like clockwork. She notices him. She walks over to him. She introduces herself to him. I'm an American reporter. I've been sent here from my newspaper to do some special interest writing. And I've observed that you come here every single day. Can you tell me what you're praying for? This elderly Jew, a Jewish man, said, you know, I come here every day, and in the mornings I pray for people. I pray for mankind all over the world. I pray for unity among mankind. I pray for brotherhood among mankind. I pray for peace to be among all peoples. And, and then that's the morning prayer, and then I go home, and I enjoy a little cup of tea. I eat a piece of bread. I have a little bit of honey, which is a good old Mediterranean diet right there. In the afternoons, I return, and, and I pray for those who are suffering from illness and sickness and disease. And, and, I, and I pray, and I ask the Lord, if he would, to take away all of those things that cause mankind to suffer. 
This lady's overwhelmed by this. I mean, she's, she's watched his faithfulness. She's watched his commitment to pray and to pray extensively and to do it day in and day out and to pray the same things. And so she really doesn't know how to respond to that. And so she's kind of trying to think of things to say and questions to ask. And, and, and so she says, how long have you been doing this? And he said, you know, I've been praying about 25 years. She said, you know, that, that really must be fulfilling. That, that really must... Um, be a sense of honor. That, that, might, that must be something that makes you feel good. And, and so what is it that you feel when you go down to the Western Wall, when you go down to the Wailing Wall, and you spend all of these hours each single day for 25 years, what is it that you feel when you're praying? And with sadness in his eyes, this older Jewish man looks at her and says, it feels like praying to a wall. Catches her off guard. What do you mean it feels like praying to a wall? How could you, this, I'm sure this is what's going through her mind, how could you be praying for so long about the same thing and yet it only feels like praying to a wall? You see, I believe for too many people in this world, Christians in general, this is the experience that they have when it comes to prayer. That they pray and they seek to engage God and they want God to move in their life or move in their family or move in a situation. And, and so they bore their hearts to the Lord and they share their greatest needs and their struggles and, and whatever it is that they're dealing with. They bring that before the Lord and yet it feels like the prayers have never went past the ceiling of their home or they've never went past the very lips that they're being uttered from. So in essence, it's like they're praying to a wall because there seems to be no activity on the other end of the line. Today, that may be true for you. It may be true that when you pray, you feel like nothing is happening, that your prayer is useless. And yet, what does the Bible tell us about this? We believe the Bible is God's word. We believe God, the Bible is God's inspired word. God breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16 would tell us. Theonoustos, he voiced it into existence. We believe it's inerrant. We believe it's infallible. We believe that everything it says, we can take it to the bank and trust our lives upon it. Build our lives upon it. Amen? So we believe that. So what does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about prayer? Well, I shared with you last week that we go to 1 Samuel chapter 1, and there's this story about a lady named Hannah. Hannah's a married woman. She's married to a man who has two wives, and the other wife is able to bear children. And yet the husband loved her more than the other, but she was barren. In that culture and in that day, it was a big deal to be barren. It's probably even a bigger deal than it is today. So they come to the tabernacle for the annual sacrifice and there she is burying her heart and her soul before the Lord asking God to give her a child the priest observes this they have a conversation about it and the priest prophesies God answers the prayer through him saying this time next year you'll have a son his name will be Samuel you know what happened the next year she showed up with a little baby boy you know what his name was Samuel one of the great prophets of Israel. Hey, you go to the book of Ezra and you see that God moves in Ezra's life and leads him to begin to confess the sins of Israel. And that leads to a mighty movement of the people of God confessing their sin as they've come back from exile. You see the book of Daniel. Daniel is asking the Lord for divine inspiration of how to interpret dreams. You know what happened there? God gave him the ability to interpret dreams. You go to the New Testament, you see Paul praying for churches. Epaphras praying for the church at Colossae. John the Baptist being mighty in prayer. Jesus obviously being mighty in prayer. And great things happening as a result. So what does the Bible tell us about God and prayer? God hears, that God has a desire to answer, and that he answers our prayers. So when we think about prayer, are we praying to a wall? No, we're praying to a God who is alive and active and in our corner wanting to answer our prayers. See, the problem is not with God. The problem, if there is a problem at all, is with us. It's when we don't pray. It's when we only pray once and kind of give up. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. 
It's when we don't have the faith to believe God and maybe just go through the motions of prayer. The problem is always on our end. It's never on his end. It's never the disconnect between God and us. It's always the disconnect between us and God. So if you will, look with me. and Let's read this text this morning. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to give you a short overview of what we talked about last Sunday. And then we're going to hit these last three points. Verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Jesus said to them, which of you who has a friend? Will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So Jesus is praying. The disciples are there. Whether they're praying, we don't know, but they're there. They're observing. And when Jesus finishes his prayer time with the Father, the disciple comes up to him and says, Jesus, I want you, we want you to teach us to pray like John the Baptist has taught his disciples to pray. So John the Baptist was a man of prayer. That's a uh, perhaps that's new for us. We've not thought of him in that category before. We see him as a martyr. We see him as a prophet. We see him as a teacher. We see him as a baptizer. But the disciples of Jesus looked at John the Baptist and said, he's a man of prayer. Th- this is a man who is mighty in prayer. He taught his followers to pray. Jesus, teach us to pray. And so who is this man we know as John the Baptist? Well, it goes back to the first part of Luke. We looked at it a long time ago. John the Baptist was a man who was uh, specially born. His, his mama was barren as well. God miraculously gave her the ability to bear a child and, and spoke to Zechariah, the father, there in the temple as he's offering the sacrifice and doing all of his priestly duties. And so he had this miraculous uh, beginning. The Bible even tells us that John the Baptist had the Holy Spirit from the womb. So he has spiritual advantages that you and I have never had. Now, we have, this, we have the Holy Spirit when we have been born again. That's when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. When we, through faith, trust in Jesus, turn from our sin, turn to him, the Holy Spirit comes to reside within us, to teach us and to lead us into all truth. But for John the Baptist, that happened in the womb. That's a whole other story about salvation and soteriology and things of that nature we don't have time to get into today. But that's where John the Baptist received the Holy Spirit. So if John the Baptist has the Holy Spirit in a special, unique relationship with God, why is he a man of prayer? We can also ask the same things about the Lord Jesus. Why is Jesus such a prayer man, prayer warrior? Why why does he spend so much time praying to and with the Father? So we see here that John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, both of these individuals learn the spiritual discipline of prayer. They had to develop in that. So the takeaway for us is prayer is something that doesn't come natural. You're not going to fall into a deep, uh, just abiding uh, walk with the Lord in prayer. That's something that comes through discipline. That comes through uh, uh, personal commitment, personal leaning into, and a forsaking of things that's going to Take you away from that. We don't fall into spiritual maturity. We don't fall into a a strong, mature prayer life. We have to walk into that. That's what John the Baptist is doing here. 
He's leaning in. He's developing his prayer life. He's developing his ability to trust and to be taught by the Lord. So effective prayer for us must be taught. It must be learned. So this morning, you're sitting here. You're listening to this. Maybe you're here last Sunday, and you were in that sermon, and you heard the first portion of this text. And you're thinking, my prayer life is not very effective. You're in the same boat with a lot of people, Right? And so how do you get from not being effective in prayer, not spending a lot of time in prayer, not really learning and knowing how to abide in Christ through prayer, how do you get from there to where John the Baptist is and where the Lord Jesus is and where these disciples are going to go? How do you get there? Daily commitment and discipline, one step in front of the other. So it's okay that you're where you are this morning in your spiritual life. What is not okay is that you stay there. What's not okay is you saying, this is good enough for me. Man, I'm going to coast all the way into heaven. I'm going to just ride the rails of this gravy train into glory. And I'm, I've got my, my, my assignment. I've got my address. It's in heaven one day. And it doesn't matter where I'm at now. I'm in Christ. And, and I'm okay with that. I don't care about moving into deeper abidedness. That's a new word for us. With Jesus Christ. That's what's not okay. So we want to learn and be more effective in our prayer. We want to learn how to trust the Lord and, and know the Lord and walk with the Lord in prayer more and more and more. And so today, as a follower of Jesus Christ, would you like to be more effective in prayer? If the answer to that question is yes, you are on the same place, in the same situation that these disciples were when they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And so let's learn this morning about effective prayer. Last week, I shared with you the first component. There's four of them in this text about effective prayer. We talked about if we're going to pray effectively, it begins with praying intimately. And Jesus says there, when you pray, say, Father. And so we talked about this vertical uh, focus when it comes to our intimacy with the Lord in prayer. That it is we're praying to a father. And we hear that term and that makes sense to us because we've got 2,000 plus years of Christian influence that says God is our father. But in the day that Jesus spoke this, that was a revolutionary statement. Because while the Old Testament writers, the Old Testament believers believed that God was father, it was more of a corporate father. He is the creator father and it's always spoken in the context of the nation of Israel and never on an individual level. But Jesus says here, when you pray, speaking to the individual believer, say, Father. And most scholars hear that term, and they, they, they believe Jesus, who's speaking in Aramaic. The gospel is written in Greek, but Jesus would have been speaking in this moment in Aramaic, and the word he probably used is that word that we hear, Abba. And it means daddy. It's much more informal than the word Father is from an English standpoint, but it has a whole lot more warmth to it. You see, my children, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, but my children don't call me father. That sounds like I'm in Britain or something. Father, father, will you pass the coffee? I, I don't know what they say in Britain. I've, tea, yes, you got to hold your finger up. I, I drink coffee. I don't drink hot tea. It's weird. I'm an American. We drink hot coffee and cold, sweet tea. Amen. So my, my kids don't say father. I've, I've got one that will call me father sometimes, but it's always in a kind of a derogatory, making fun type of thing. But they say dad, right? Sometimes daddy. Usually just dad. It's, it's informal, but it's personal. It's got warmth there. It's got a level of intimacy that's behind it. That's what Jesus is saying here. When you pray, say, Father. So he introduces the disciples. He introduces those who would faith into him and, and come to the Father through the gospel message. He introduces them to this intimacy that they had really never known when it comes to their relationship with God. So he says, pray, Father, hallowed be your name. He talks about the holiness of God, the otherness of God. And so when we say, hallowed be your name, that is really saying, Father, may your will, may, may, may everything that you've given me in life and home, that unique, have that unique reverence that only your character and nature as Father demand. Man, may your name be holy and reverence as I come to you in intimacy. It goes on to say, Pray king, your kingdom come. 
So it's a pray the kingdom come, and you're basically saying what the lawyer's saying back in 1025, how can I have eternal life? So when you say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom's come, you're saying, may everything you've declared become a reality in my life. May it become a reality in this world that people would be resurrected, that death would be no more, that healing would take place, that there would be no longer be anything of sinfulness and the and the, 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 the fallenness of sin, the consequences of sin. Think about this. Effective prayer is intimate prayer, and it understands vertically that it's contingent upon a loving, holy, wonderful Father in heaven. Then there's this horizontal component. He says, give us each day our daily bread. Basically, literally, he's saying, give us, tomorrow, give us the bread for tomorrow today. So, Father, we understand that everything physically that we need in life is contingent upon you. So give that to us. Now, you say, oh, I got a job, and, and I go to work, and I make money, and, 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 and I provide for my home and my family. We need to understand that we do nothing that God hasn't allowed or given or provided for us. He is our provider. We sang about that just a few minutes ago. The Lord, our provider, he gives it all to us. You say this morning, I wish God had give me a little bit more. Maybe that's the case. We need to come back to the fact that God is good and sovereign and all-knowing and always looking out for our best interest. So we may think we need more, but God knows what we need, and he is the provider for that. So give us our daily our, our bread, our daily bread. Give us the things that we need physically. We also understand that he gives us what we need spiritually. He's the one who meets our spiritual need through his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we pray this, give us each day our daily bread, we're trusting in the provision of God, both physically and spiritually. Then he takes in another step in our horizontal uh, focus here in our prayer. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And so we see here the forgiveness of God that comes through the gospel. So those of us who have been forgiven much must forgive much. That's what it means. That's what he's saying here as he leads this and presents this model prayer, this template for us to pray. Pray for forgiveness. Confess your sin. And we dealt with that extensively last Sunday. Man, what does your prayer life look like when it comes to confession of sin? Are we owning up to the areas in our life that are not where they ought to be? Uh, the, the sins that we're dabbling in, the, the areas of life that we should not be in, are we bringing that to the Lord and allowing his spirit to, to, to bring that sin to light and allowing his word to speak to those areas, almost like water would wash us to reveal those sins? Are we bringing that to the Lord and confessing that, receiving forgiveness for that? Someone harms us or hurts us, are we forgiving, not because they deserve it, not even because they've asked for it, but because we have received forgiveness from the Lord, are we reciprocating that and passing it on to others? He says, when you pray, pray that you would be forgiven, even as you are forgiven. And then he says, lead us not into temptation. This is the final petition and we shouldn't misunderstand it that God is a tempter. God is not the one who tempts anybody, but he does test us. He does put us in positions. He does allow things to happen in our lives so that we are in a position to have to make a choice. But God never leads us into, into temptation. So what is Jesus asking his disciples to do as he prays this? He's asking them to understand their own frailty, their own propensity to sin. Do you know that we're all one decision away from rebellion against God? Just one decision. And every day we have multiple opportunities in front of us to rebel against the Lord. To question. Wait a minute, what was the question the serpent gave to Adam and Eve in the garden? He wasn't jingling in front of them a bag of money. He wasn't jingling in front of them something monumental. He just says, did God really say? He questioned the goodness of God. And we're tempted all the time with the things of life to say, I'm not so sure that God knows what's best for me or is providing what's best for me. So I'm going to step into this space and be God unto myself because I know better than the infinite one who created and sustains all things. That's the temptation in front of us, that we would trust ourselves over and above the Lord. So Jesus here teaches disciples to pray. And when he teaches them to pray, he says, pray something like this. Lead us not into temptation. 
Help us to trust you. Help us to lean into you. Help us not be led into the temptational aspects that life presents before us. Pray intimately. Here's why we need to think about this. I want you to picture a king who's sitting on a throne. Now, obviously, Jesus is king. The Bible gives us that picture. But just think of a king, not Jesus, but a king who's leading a kingdom, who's sitting on his throne. Who comes before the king to share and to talk and to discuss the matters of the kingdom? Does everybody have access to the king? Probably not. That'd be a lot of time in the court there for the king to have to hear from every single person. So in a kingdom, the king is not listening to everybody. He's only listening to an inner circle who hear from others, who hear from others, who hear from others, who hear from others, and on down the line, right? So not everybody, in fact, the vast majority of the people in the kingdom have no access at all to the king. Who has full access to the king? His children, his wife. You think the king listens to them? If he's a good king, absolutely. Why? There's intimacy there. There's relationship there. So when we think about effective prayer, we want to approach prayer from the standpoint of intimacy. We want to pray intimately, understanding that vertical and that horizontal focus in that intimacy. There's a second component that I want to share with you. Jesus here calls us to pray persistently. In verses 5 through 8, we see this parable that Jesus offers to us, and it is a call to be persistent in prayer. You see, the pattern that he lays out in verses 2, 3, and 4, this template, as I said last Sunday, is not a verbatim prayer. Jesus is not telling us that when we pray, we must say, Father, hallowed be your name, Dot, dot, dot. That's not what he's calling us to do. He's saying, here are some priorities that ought to be present when you pray. So we have a pattern, we have a template, and that is good for us. But seeing our prayer requests come to fruition will also require determination on our part. And so he gives us this parable to flesh that out. And in this story, a man is awakened in the middle of the night by his friend who is a guest, but no food to put before him. You say, I don't understand this at all. Well, that's because you're not from the Middle East. You don't understand the culture and the norms of that day and even the day in which we live today. But in the Middle East, hospitality is huge, right? Huge. And so if a traveling guest would arrive at your home, whether announced or unannounced, Hospitality, the law of hospitality in that culture says you wait on that person, you meet every need they have. That's why when you read stories in the Old Testament of when someone's traveling, they come to their, their tent, their camp, they're always welcomed in and fed the best that they had to offer. They took care of their camels, they took care of their donkeys, whatever they had, they treated them as royalty because that was the hospitality, the culture of the day. Still the same today. And so Jesus presents this and saying, here's a man who has a guest who come to his home, comes to his home. He has nothing to provide for him. So he goes next door in the middle of the night, knocks on the door and says, I have a friend who's arrived. I have nothing to put before him. Give me some bread. Give me three loaves of bread so that I might take care of my guests. This man says, I'm sorry, it's the middle of the night. I'm in the bed with my children. The door's locked. I, I, I'm not getting up, Right. You say, well, I thought it was the hospitality of the day. Well, it was for the guy who had the traveling guest. It must not have been the norm for the person who lived next door to him. So he's kind of a cranky old dude that doesn't want to get up in the middle of the night. And I can sympathize with that, can't you? You awaken me in the middle of the night? If it ain't 4 o'clock in the morning, you probably don't want to waken me up very much. I'm a little cranky at 2 p.m., right? You are too. What's that? Eight. Well, yeah, yeah, you're right, 2 a.m., I don't sleep till 2 p.m. That would be a little weird for me. So here's a guy waking in the middle of the night. He's not going to get up. But Jesus says, because of your impudence, your persistence, he's going to get up. He's not getting up because you're his friend. He's not getting up because you're his neighbor. You're not getting up because you presented a good argument. He's only getting up because you kept knocking on the door and you're not going away. So the fastest and easy way, easiest way to get rid of the nuisance is to just meet the need. Jesus tells this story to say, even when the cranky old neighbor won't get up and do something, the heavenly father delights in that. He will get up. 
It's persistence. We are to pray persistently before the Lord. So he goes on to flesh this out. He says to his disciples, ask, seek, and knock, verse 9. The, the word ask implies requesting assistance for a conscious need. So when we go to the Lord and we're praying persistently, we're asking, Lord, here's the need. We need your assistance here. Here's it laid out before you. I want you to know what this need is. Lord, help me with it. Seek is the word that denotes asking, but it adds some action to it. So we're asking the Lord, we're laying the need out, but now we're going to put action to that. So it's almost like the idea is we're going to get up and look around for a solution while trusting for the Lord. So I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking. Knocking takes the asking and it takes the seeking and it adds to it persevering. And each of these verbs are present imperatives. We're to keep doing this. It's an ongoing action in our lives. In other words, it calls us to ask and keep asking. It calls us to seek and keep seeking. It calls us to knock and to keep on knocking. And then he does another thing to it. He stacks them together, which even further emphasizes the point. We are to ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. What does that all mean? Persistent in our prayer life. Not just coming before the Lord flippantly and saying, Lord, here's the need. Call me when you answer it and walking away. No, he says, ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. See, we as disciples who pray persistently are people who believe God will answer these prayers are not works. Jesus is not calling his, his disciples here to, to engage in some sort of work. No, it's a, it's a disposition of faith. I'm going to keep asking the Lord and keep seeking the Lord and keep knocking on the Lord's door, being persistent in my prayer because I believe God by faith will answer the prayer. It leads us to a third component. We want to pray expectantly. Verse 10 adds to this idea of persistence. It says in verse 10, for everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. So the one who is actively asking, the one who's actively seeking, and the one who's actively knocking does so because there is a confidence that he or she will receive, find, and that the door will be open. There's an expectation in our prayer as we come before God. How many times do we as Christians Think about this. How many times do we who believe God, or at least we say we believe God, we say we believe that God answers, hears, answers, and responds to our prayer, how many times do we come to the Lord and we pray once and we just say, all right, I pray? Is that the model that Jesus is presenting to his disciples? To pray one time and to walk away? You say, well, that's faith. I don't need to pray more than that because it's faith. I, I believe God heard my prayer. I believe God's answering my prayer, and, and he'll get back to me when the answer comes in, right? I, I'll open the mailbox one day, and the check that I need is going to be in there. Th that's how we look at that. Is that okay? Not based upon the way Jesus presents this. You say, what's the big deal there? Be I think the issue here is because when we pray just one time about a matter, I think what we're doing, and we're probably uh, um, um, fooling ourselves in this, but I think subconsciously, maybe even consciously, we're just covering the basis. Check the box. I prayed about it. Prayed. It's in the Lord's hands now. I prayed about it. Waiting for the answer. The difference is the one who asks and keeps asking, seeks and keeps seeking, knocks and keeps knocking. I think what Jesus is telling us here, that is the person who actually prays expectantly. Because when we persist in our prayer, it's not that we don't believe God. We believe God so much that we're going to keep bringing it up. We're, we're going to keep bringing it before the Lord. We're going to keep petitioning because we're trusting and believing and, and expecting God to answer that prayer. But when we don't continue to pray in that, I believe we don't really believe God's going to answer. Or at least he's not going to answer in the way that we want. So we're just going to kind of go through emotion. We're going to kind of tiptoe into that space, but we're not really all in. And that's not what Jesus says we're to do. We are to pray with a full expectation that God hears and responds and desires to do so. So when it comes to effective prayers, they are persistent and expectant. 
There's a fourth component. We need to pray believingly. Jesus finishes his instruction on prayer with the theme of a father just as he began. Remember, he says, when you pray, say, Father. Verse 11 through 13, he ends with this picture of a father. When you think about a father, fathers can be many things. Some, some of you in this room, you had great fathers. You have great fathers or you had great fathers, right? When you think of who your dad is or who your dad was, those are me- memories that are good. Those are wonderful memories. You cherish those memories. You think about Christmases and birthdays and Thanksgivings and all the other special days or spending time doing whatever you enjoyed to do together. So you have a beautiful, wonderful, godly picture of a father. Some of you in this room, it's not so much. You have memories or thoughts about your dad. It's not a good picture. So we have skewed perspectives of a father. But here's one um, common denominator in that. None of us, even if our father was awful, would never expect that father to be as bad as the father that's demonstrated in this text. Dad, I'm hungry. Will you give me some of your fish to eat? Sure, baby. Here's a serpent, right? A live serpent at that, probably. Not even a dead serpent. It's not like rattlesnake grilled on the open fire, which we might partake of and say, bon appetit, let's have some of that. And I've, all, I've never had broiled rattlesnake, but I'd eat it, right? So he's not offering grilled snake here. He's saying, here, here's a fish, but it's an old rattler as he opens the top there, and it's going to bite him and kill him. That's the awfulness of this dad. And so we would never think of that being a good father, even if we have a bad dad. At the same time, the picture is of a person who asks for another piece of food. He says, yep, yep, you want that? You want an egg? You want a boiled egg, scrambled egg, fried egg, omelet, whatever kind of egg you want? Sure, I'll give it to you. You open up the tray, you look at the plate, and it's a scorpion. You ever had a scorpion in your house? My wife's from Georgia. Uh, Our first year of marriage, we lived in a two-bedroom basement apartment. And so down there, uh, it was on a hill, and so scorpions were in the, underneath rocks. You'd go out there, pick up a rock, and see a little bitty scorpion like that. I remember two times in the eight months we lived in this house having scorpions in the bed. One time, it was at the dinner table. So we're sitting there, newly married couple. Uh, I don't ever wear shoes in the house. I just don't like it. Uh, I just... I want my feet free, you know, amen? I don't want to wear socks. I don't want to have shoes. I just want to be free in the house. So I don't have shoes on, bare feet. I'm sitting there at the dinner table. We're eating this fine meal that my wife prepared. And um, I don't remember what it was, but I know it was fine meal. And uh, I look down underneath the table, and there's a little scorpion at the edge of my toes. I, I probably screamed and jumped and got the 12-gauge shotgun out of the corner blasted a hole into the floor. I don't know what I did, but I, I, I took care of the scorpion. The second time, we're in bed. I lift the covers up, or maybe she lifted the covers up. I don't know. Scorpion in our bed right there, right between the two lovebirds, newlywed couple, scorpion. I added that in there for flair. Um, <laughs> This dad is so bad that when little Johnny asks for a fried egg, he serves him up a live scorpion. Death. What do snakes do? If they're lethal, they're lethal. They'll kill you. That's the picture. And so he says, which of you has a father, knowing that you're all evil, which of you has a father, even though you're evil, would give someone like that? No, you would never give that. You would give exactly what little Johnny asked for, little Susie asked for. And so if that's the case for you who are evil, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit when you ask? So Jesus here is finishing this instruction on prayer, and he gives this beautiful theme of fatherhood, the fatherhood of God. Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater, and he tells us how wonderful, how beautiful God is. Here's what I want you to know about God the Father when we pray. He always, always, always gives his children the best. Always. You say, Pastor, I've been praying for something for years, and it's never come. Or, Pastor, I prayed for something for years, and it wasn't what I was asking for. I didn't say he gives you what you ask for. I says he gives you his best. He's infinitely good, infinitely wise, 
infinite in the fact that he knows the end from the beginning. And so what we cannot see in our finiteness, he sees, his, sees in his infiniteness. So he always knows what's best, and he always gives his best. We must pray believingly. Trusting his goodness, persisting in prayer because he is good, and just praying and praying and praying because he gives his best. And what is his best? The Holy Spirit. You say, this morning you may be praying for something in your life to go better or go different. Maybe you're struggling with a decision right now. And so you, you need to make a choice. You need to make a decision. Maybe you're wrestling whether or not to take a new job or to step down from your position or whatever the case is. So you want that tangible thing to come out. And, and he'll answer that. He'll answer that prayer request in his time and in his way and give the needed response. But behind it all, it's not about what you're going through or what your need is. It's about your own sanctification. And he wants you to step into that. And how does that sanctification take place? His spirit. So as he gives you his spirit, as you pray intimately and persistently and expectantly and believingly, as you're praying that way effectively, he gives you his self. And that is the best gift he could ever give. God isn't the, 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 the genie in a bottle where we rub it three times and he pops out and, and grants our wishes. We want God to be like that most of the time because it's selfish and it's all about us. God knows more than we do and desires more for us than we do, so he's going to give us his best, which is himself. It's the long approach, but it's the healthier and the safer road. Man, we want to short-circuit everything. You would love to have three wishes from a genie right now. Amen? Let's just say it. Be honest about that. You would like, I would like that most of the time. Man, if I just had three wishes, I know exactly what I'd wish for. It'd be an easy, straight stretch. But you know what happened? There would, no be, there would be no maturity in my personal walk as I get to those destinations. So God's more concerned about the journey than he is the destination. And so he gives us his spirit to walk with us, to teach us, to guide us, and to lead us into all truth. So this morning, as we pray believingly, will we believe God is good? And will we believe that God gives us his best? And will we be satisfied with the Holy Spirit of God as the answer? I want to close and conclude this morning with a story out of 2 Kings Chapter 19. If you got a Bible, turn there with me. You see a similar story in 2 Chronicles 32. Both are historic. Both give the details. Some give, each give different details. But listen from 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14. Let me just kind of set the stage here. King Hezekiah is the king of Judah. And Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. Assyria is this mighty nation up to the northeast. Those of you who are here this past Friday night and went through Seeker Church and walked through the book of Jonah, you heard a lot about the king of Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria. Wicked people, uh, just fierce warriors, just bloodthirsty type of, uh, of warfare. They have already come in and destroyed and taken away the kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes. Now they're marching on Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah, the southern two tribes. King Hezekiah gets word of this, and his response is not diplomatically, it's not diplomacy, he's not sending out money and doing things. His response is to get on his face before God. 2 Chronicles 32 tells us it wasn't just the king praying, but Isaiah the prophet also prayed and sought the face of God. And so look with me in verse 14 of 2 Kings 19. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living, living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, 
O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So Hezekiah the king prayed this prayer, and Isaiah the prophet was praying a similar prayer as well at the same time. And the Bible tells us that God heard their prayers and that he sent word through the prophet Isaiah with the answer. Syria would be struck down even before they attacked. Look over in verse 34. God says, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. In verse 35, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. The people arose early in the morning. Behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. Absolutely. If 185,000 of your troops were wiped out in a night without the Jews ever drawing a sword, of course you're going to run. And so he leaves and he goes back to Nineveh, the capital. And as he's worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ariat. And Eser Hayden, his son, reigned in his place. You say, Pastor, why are you sharing that story? I love that story. And this is the reason. It is a story about the faithfulness of God to answer prayer. You say, I don't know if Hezekiah was asking and asking. Ask and keep on asking or seek and keep on seeking or knock and keep on knocking. We don't know the tremendous story there or how long he prayed that night. But I got to believe he was on his face and desperate before the Lord. You see, when you're desperate before the Lord, you don't just flippantly pray. When you're desperate before the Lord, if that's your disposition, you are there. You're in the fight in prayer. And I believe that's where Hezekiah was. And so God heard the prayer, and God answered the prayer, and he did so in a way that just blows our minds. Hezekiah, as he's praying that, I doubt he ever thought that something so miraculous was going to happen. He's asking, Lord, raise us up in battle. Make us mighty in warfare. Help us defeat Sennacherib and his troops. When all the nations have fallen in front of him and been destroyed by him, may you make your people strong. And God says, I'm going to do something so great that no one gets the credit and glory for this. And the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 pagans. Why? Because the king and the prophet and probably a whole lot more other people on their faces before God, praying effectively through intimacy and persistence and expectant and believing God's good in all this. You want to pray effectively in your life? Pray like that. Make that your prayer time. Make that your disposition before the Lord. May we as a church be hungry for God, believe God, trust God, follow God, walk with God. Just lean in to all the things that he's leading and calling us to do. Every single Sunday, I'm going to let you know, three minutes over. Ben Lazar told me not to say that this morning, but three minutes over. Let me say this. Every Sunday that I stand up to do the welcome, we always do that in conjunction, for the most part, with the offering. I'm not, we're not a church that's a health and wealth. Hey, if you give, God's going to just pour the, you know, just buckets of gold just going to fall out of your truck, your car as you drive down the road. We don't believe in prosperity gospel. But we do believe that when we're obedient, God will always take care of his people. So I struggle. I'll just be, be honest. I struggle when I stand up of what to say, because I never want to come across as some sort of flippant salesman to say, you ought to give to this church, and if you do, you'll get some goodness from God. That's not my desire at all. I would love to never even mention stewardship, but I know that as a, as a human being with a fallenness default bent to our lives, that we have to be pushed in some areas, that we have to be spoken to in some areas, because if we're not, then we have a tendency to kind of wall that area of our lives off because it's uncomfortable. Because where our treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart is also. So what do we treasure most in our life? Many of us, the treasure is finances. So I struggle with speaking to that issue without coming across in a, in a way that is um, manipulative. 
I'm never, we're never trying to manipulate. We just want you to be faithful in every area of your life. And so one of the strongest areas for us to, to give over, the most difficult areas for us to give over to the Lord is stewardship, financial stewardship. So we struggle with that. When I should just be able to stand up here and say, it's time to give. And we as a church, let's do it. I don't know how it's going to happen. You know, we're an economy that's lean. I prayed for this earlier in our small group time. We are in a lean time in our nation. Really, it's worldwide. We're, it's lean when it comes to finances. And we have a tendency to pull back in those days instead of fulfill those commitments. There's so many in our church. I, I, don't, I don't see these numbers. I, I probably should look at these numbers. But a couple years ago when we started our Vision 2024 campaign to try to pay off debt and do more in missions and, and to do more things around our campus, when we committed to those things, I wonder how many of us have pulled back from that because financially things have changed in our nation. You have the means, but you have pulled back out of fear. When we should just say, Lord, you led me to this to begin with, I'm going to trust you with it. So I'm going to keep asking, I'm going to keep seeking, I'm going to keep knocking, I'm going to pray with intimacy because I know you're a good father. I know you're looking out for my good, you're going to meet my daily needs. I, I, I believe all of that, I'm leaning into that. And so I believe these things. And so you're just going to continue walking. How many of us are doing that rather than pulling back? That's a difficult thing. I get it. We struggle with that. And so I struggle with it as well as I try to lead us as a church but let's be a church that believes in prayer. We believe in the intimacy of the Father. Man, he wants so much more for us than we want for ourselves. Do you believe that this morning? Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our Father. Those of us in this room and those of us who are listening online who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we can call you Father today because of the blood of Jesus that has brought us near. Paul says, though we were once far off, we have been brought near through the blood of the Lamb. And so we thank you this morning that we can call you Father, and we thank you that you are holy and righteous and good and wonderful. We thank you today that you take care of our needs and, and that you're bringing your kingdom into our lives and into our homes and into our church. And we want to see that in our community. We pray that you would help us to be persistent in our prayer, to trust you and to believe you and to want the things that you want for us and to pursue those things persistently. God, may we be expectant in our lives we don't just flippantly just check the box and say, we prayed, we sought the Lord's face, but we really never believed to begin with. But God, may we instead believe and believe and believe. It's then that our prayers are effective. God, around this room, there are people who when they pray, it feels like they're praying to a wall. And it's probably because they either don't know you or they don't believe you. And so I pray you would bring whatever reason for their ineffectiveness to light. Speak to them. Reveal it. May they feel that today. May they bring it before you as in confession and repentance. This morning in this room, there's some people that need to give their life to Jesus Christ. They come faithfully. <laughs> Some more faithfully, perhaps, than, than those who know Jesus Christ. And yet, they have never experienced the intimacy we've been talking about here. They can't call you Father. They can call you Creator, but they cannot call you Father because they have not yet been brought into sonship through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So this morning, I pray that eyes that are open to faith would be granted to them. I pray this morning for Christians in this room that for whatever reason have a tendency to be hesitant and flippant, which is really nothing more than a disposition of pride when it comes to prayer. We'll trust the Lord when we can't do it ourselves is sort of the mantra of the human experience. And Lord, I pray that the mantra of our lives would be we want God to be in every 
facet of our lives. So would you bless us today with that sort of faith and desire and drive. We move into a time of response here in just a moment as we sing this song. God, what is it you're saying to us? Whatever that is, may we be responsive. As we talk about prayer, what a great opportunity to put it into practice, to walk it out, than to come and just lay before the Lord here. Kneel before the Lord at these steps and say, Father, here it is. And trust him with it. Holy Spirit, may you be our gift today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.